Hi, I'm Lori. And I'm Kevin, and this is No Longer Ashamed. We are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And we're here to share with you that if you're a survivor, you don't have to be alone. Our logo is a salamander, and the reason is a fire salamander can survive a fire, and you have survived a fire. We want to help you with your journey to healing and hope. We are all survivors together, and we walk this journey together. And you are not alone. By telling our stories, we are hoping that you will have the courage to share in your story as well and find your voice. Because stories are so important, and for so long, I know that I wouldn't tell my story, but when I finally shared my story, that's when I got my freedom. And this is our journey and your journey to healing and hope. So come with us. Our guest is Dana Morgan Murphy, and her book is called The Ballerina in the Box. Welcome. Thank you, Lori. Glad to be here. I have not read it yet. I am really looking forward to it because when I read the intro or the, you know, the review about it, it really hit me where I am because, you know, it's this later in life finding the freedom from things. So I am so excited. But Kevin, I know you read it. So do you want to say something before we get going? Well, I really, it resonated a lot for me. And I really appreciated that you also included in the book, some of the stuff you did with adult children of alcoholics and some of the other things. And I think that was really important because a lot of survivors are also dealing with parents that might have had or family members that had issues with alcoholism or drugs Mm -hmm. and uh, as I have. And I just appreciated that you acknowledged that and also gave credit for that. And I really like that a lot. Thanks. (laughs) So what led you to write this book? Do you want to tell us that and then you can go into your story? Sure. I um. I honestly, uh, Lori, I think the biggest motivator for me in writing the book was just to kind of draw a line in the sand, ending the generational curses that were in my family. I did it for my five adult children. I did it for my 10 grandchildren. And I really wanted to give other people the courage to fight for that abundant life that God's promised them, that they didn't need to live and settle for survival mode. So that was sort of my motivator in writing the book. Kevin and I on this show, we always, you know, encourage people to tell their story and to get the help and healing because we see so many people that don't because it is, it's a very scary, it's very hard. And so kudos to you for, for being brave enough. Thank you. To do that. So do you want to just tell us your story? I'd be happy to to share parts of my story with you. Of course, um, it would take a, a while to share my story with you. And well, we want them to read the book mostly. This this will prime them for that. <laughs> it's the book is very candid. It's a pretty raw account of many of the things that I experienced, and and then also my journey to healing and to becoming whole. It, like you said, it's not an easy process, but it's well worth it to get to the other side because that other side includes everything that God promises us. And I would hate to see anyone miss out on those promises. So really for as far back as I can remember, my life was dominated by fear, uh, lots of fear and, and secrets, really primarily those two things. Alcohol was at the root of much of that, but 
as a child, you, you're not really, you're not really realizing that you just know that you're living in a lot of fear. So some of those fears I had were afraid of the dark. I was afraid of being alone. When I started going to school, I was afraid of not being good enough, not making good grades. I was afraid of coming home and my report card not being straight A's. I was afraid of not being liked. And I was absolutely terrified of dying. Just anything surrounding death or talk of death or anything scary like that really terrified me. I had a reoccurring nightmare for years, starting about the time I was four or five years old. And in that reoccurring nightmare, I would feel like I couldn't breathe as if I was suffocating and that I was going to die. And it would leave me paralyzed, really uh, in terror, just a paralyzing terror. And we know as adults, you know, we don't know this really as children, but as adults, we know that fear is a powerful attempt by the enemy to weaken us in every way, mentally, physically, and spiritually. It robs us of the peace. It robs us of the joy that, you know, Jesus died to give us. And that, you know, I know everyone probably has their own higher power. My my faith is Christian faith. And so I do talk a lot about the Lord in it. And I feel like when we live in that fear, we lose sight of the truth that God is with us. We forget that he's with us or we feel abandoned by God when we have these experiences. So because fear had gained such a stronghold in my life at such a young age, I really did feel like God had abandoned me. I really started to feel like I was two people, like I had two separate identities almost. Uh, One was a girl that craved the love and attention of her dad, where I was really just getting scraps. He was emotionally unavailable because of his addiction to alcohol. And he was also a womanizer. So he didn't, he didn't love me in the way that, that he needed to be loving me. And so alcohol got most of, most of that attention from him. The other identity that I had was the one that loved to entertain people and make people laugh. And I danced, I took tap, I took ballet, I took piano, I loved recitals, uh, anything where I could be kind of in the spotlight. I, I liked that. I I also felt like it was my responsibility in a way to talk for, to be a voice for my mother and my father and my brother. None of them really talked. They, it was almost like I lived in a family of robots or aliens was uh, what I called. And I referred to it as a child as the quiet house. And I talk about that in the book. Outside of our house, we looked like the perfect all-American family. Behind those closed doors was really no interactive communication, uh, not even at dinner time. And what was really sad is I couldn't even retreat to my bedroom for that comfort because of the vivid pictures of the dreams that I had in that room. So I remember... One time in elementary school, I went to a slumber party and we watched an Alfred Hitchcock show. It was the first time I had ever seen one. And a thought went through my mind that even in my bedroom with the ruffled curtains and the beautiful bedspread and everything that had made that to be a pretty aesthetic, you know, aesthetically pretty bedroom, it could have been the perfect setting for a Hitchcock film. It was um, that scary for me to be in there. So... Like I said, my my life was ruled by fear and secrets. At first, it was the secrets of my parents that they held. I believe my mother held a lot of secrets for my dad, and my dad had a lot of secrets from his past. 
And so they just put on an act, basically a show. And then as I got older, I took on awful secrets of my own that, that I was responsible for. And so those secrets just kept lying to me, the secrets of generations before me, of my parents, my own secrets. And they told me all these lies about myself, which created shame and guilt. And then that shame and guilt turned into anxiety and depression. And it was debilitating. It got to the point where it's debilitating. I say in my book about my parents and their kind of their pretentious acting is what I like to say that they truly could have been Academy Award winners because of the way they presented themselves on the outside and then the way that they, they really were at home. And I feel like a lot of people can probably relate to that in some respect where people on the outside, see your family one way and then behind closed doors, it's a completely different ball game. So I do believe that both of my parents suffered enormous mental and physical pain from the secrets that they kept. My, my mother died a terrible death and so did my dad. And I feel like they died in a lot of mental anguish and pain. So one of the things that I was thinking about in the book, and I talk about a lot of things in detail, was how my dad was really, he was so out of touch with reality in so many ways that he thought nothing of setting me up, say, on a date with somebody when I was 17. I remember, well, he set me up on a date with somebody he was so excited about from work who was 38 years old and I was 17. So what's that, 21 years older? And so I dated this man who could have been my dad all summer long. And it was absolutely miraculous that I didn't end up pregnant. It was just an, an act of God. But unfortunately, I wasn't that lucky when I was 15. And as Kevin knows, he's he heard that part of my story. And there's so many different parts to my story. But I will share this, this one incident. When I was 15, I lived in Virginia Beach. We, I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia. And my parents at the time were divorced. And I had a fake ID. And so I went with a group of friends down to Virginia Beach. We called it the Strip. We went down there and we would get into all the bars. And I always looked older than I was. So I never had any problems getting into the bars. You had to be, you know, 18. And at 15, I looked 18. And so I get into this one bar with my friends and all my friends had rules. They had parents that cared about them, you know, had curfews. And my mother, I think, was just so torn up over the divorce and having to move from a, a big house in a beautiful neighborhood, you know, this whole prestige thing and keeping up with the Jones. Is we ended up living in a little apartment complex right outside the neighborhood that we used to live in. And so I think my mother just was in the pit of despair, really. She would just sort of lock herself in the room and that was the way she coped. And I didn't have any rules. I didn't have any curfews. I could do whatever I wanted. So my friends left the bar and begged me to leave with them. And there was a, an older guy. Again, I was 15 years old. And he was an older guy in his thirties and he thought I was 18, but I wasn't. And he seemed to be interested in me. And so I told them I wanted to stay. Well, the story is kind of skipping ahead a little bit. The story is I ended up going home with them. He invited me to go home with them. And I was already getting pretty tipsy, if not drunk already. And he ended up raping me. And the next morning, he drove me back to my mom's 
my apartment, my mom's apartment, and literally just dropped me on the curb at this apartment complex. And so the sun was coming up and I'm sitting there thinking my mom's got the police looking for me. She's called my friends, their parents are out looking for me. And I walked up the stairs to our apartment and unlocked the door and my mom was asleep in bed. She never knew I was gone. Well, from, from that experience, I ended up pregnant. And so that, that leads into a whole nother part of the story that I'll, I'll let people read about in the book, but I ended up having an abortion. My mother and my grandmother decided that was the best thing and never the word abortion was never mentioned to me. My mom just said I was going to her gynecologist for an appointment. I don't even think she mentioned the word DNC. I think it was the doctor that mentioned it. And his office was at the hospital I was born in. And he comes out and he thought my mother had already told me I was going to have an abortion and she hadn't. And he said, we're going to perform a procedure on you called a DNC. And I didn't, you know, it didn't really register, I guess. And so I thought I was there for an exam or something. I didn't, you know, I'd never been to a gynecologist. So I ended up having an abortion and I woke up and I just thought to myself, this, I have to pretend this didn't happen. And so my mom took me to have a hamburger afterwards, never discussed it. We never to that, you know, to the day she died, we never discussed it. So it was kind of, like I said in the book, put in this box of carnage that I had of secrets, things to not tell. And so that's, yeah, that's part of, part of my story. Wow. Yeah. Um, in the book, you talk about your grandparents a great deal. You were very close to them. It seemed like they were the family that you needed because mm -hmm. you didn't have a connection with your family. Even it seems like your brother was very distant. He was always gone a lot. Yes. My, my grandparents really, my mom's parents and my dad's parents were best friends. My parents were high school sweethearts. They ended up, they were like homecoming queen from king and queen. They ended up going to William and Mary, getting their degrees. And after college, they got married. And so my grandparents were obviously elated uh, that they got married and they planned this beautiful wedding and honeymoon. And so life was wonderful as far as they were concerned. And they traveled together. They lived a few minutes apart. And one were very countryfied, as I talk about in the book. They were from rural Virginia and they didn't spend a dime on anything they didn't have to. They grew, you know, went through the depression, saved every bit. They were educators, but but definitely weren't going to spend any money on anything. And then my other set of grandparents, he was a commander in the Navy. She was also a teacher, uh, just the opposite, very much into very citified and, you know, spoiled me rotten, bought me whatever I wanted kind of thing. And I was their only granddaughter. So I loved being at both of my grandparents' houses. And I, I really think they saved my life, honestly, mentally, especially because I I didn't feel safe in my own house. And at their house, not only did I feel safe, but it was it was normal. It was, mm. you know, they loved on me. They showed me affection. They paid attention to me. They played cards and games with me. So that was God's gift to me were my grandparents for sure. Yes. And the actual cover of the book has a ballerina in a box. It's a musical box, music box that I'm sure a lot of young girls had at the time in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it's a little ballerina that pops up and you, you turn the back of the box, the knob on the back of the box, and it plays a little song and then she twirls. 
And so that, that was given to me by my, my grandmother for one of my birthdays. And almost every birthday, she would have a ballerina on top of a cake. It was a kind of made, I think it was China made out of a porcelain or China. And I would put that in my little jewelry box off the cake. And that jewelry box sat in my bedroom. And when I would was scared at night, I would hold on to it with all the stuffed animals around me. And I would turn the knob on the back and listen to the song and just keep turning it and feel like nothing bad was going to happen as long as she was spinning. So much of the book kind of analogies revolve around that, that ballerina on the spring in the box and how I really wanted to free her. And she could dance without being on that spring in a dark box. So you talk about how you didn't talk about anything. So then did you go into a marriage and have a family and then finally get some help? Or how did how did it all evolve for you? I had two bad marriages that are talked about in the book in a lot of detail. And then my third marriage is to my current husband, Mark. And we've been married 25 years. He is the first man other than my grandfather's that has loved me or first man I've ever had a relationship with that's loved me unconditionally. He was a safe place right away for me, a place where I could heal. And as we know, God's timing is perfect. And right after we got married, it was it maybe a little over a year after we got married, I started having panic attacks and literally just started falling apart, went to counseling and all these things just started coming up from my past. And so they would ask me to journal. A lot of my journaling would come out as poetry and I'd never written poetry before. Mm. And it would come out real quickly. It would be within five minutes, I'd have three pages of this poem and they were always from God or about God. The first part might be something that would sound slightly or somewhat hopeless. And then it would turn into something beautiful at the end. And I knew when I got done that I hadn't written it. I knew that that was written by God. And one poem that I have in the book, it's called A You of Little Faith. And it says by God to me. And he would always download the title of the poem in my mind. And I would write the title and then the poem would just come out. One of them that's in the book, I remember writing on the back of a deposit slip at the bank. It was just in my It was in my head and I had to get it out. So my counselors kept saying, you know, Dana, I think God's, God's given you this gift for a reason and really want you to keep journaling. And so a lot of the journaling turned into parts of my book, basically. So, yeah. That's awesome. And yeah, the ballerina, I, (laughs) I think all of us had one of those, (laughs) jewelry boxes. Yeah. I mean, the counseling started, we got married in 1999 and I started counseling, really intense counseling and group counseling, uh, went to Al-Anon meetings. I was really, really in the throes of, of healing, really in a bad place for a while, for several years. And I, I have to say that, you know, Mark, Mark probably did a lot of healing with me. He came from a mother who was a very abusive alcoholic. And so we kind of healed together in a way. And we knew that after everything the Lord had done to remove these layers from me and give me my joy back, we knew that, like I said, we had to kind of draw that line in the sand for our kids and just say, it's going to stop with us. 
all of these things are going to stop with us. And so I think having the courage to step out and do those really hard things that that ca- initially cause you pain. I think when our children watch us do that and they see the courage that it does take to do that, it really gives them a, a boldness and an ability to to heal from things, you know, that have traumatized them in the past. And I'm watching that with my my family now and it's just a powerful Yeah, it's just a powerful thing that you can pass on to your children, that gift of healing. There's a quote that I love by Alex L. And it says, self-healing is an act of community service. And what we see is when people choose not to heal, they have behaviors, they have triggers that affect everyone around them, only they don't recognize it. They they think they're the only one hurting. And so when we are so courageous to step into the counseling, and, and I love that, you know, you started with Al- Al-Anon because adult children of alcoholics have certain behaviors too. And all of a sudden, when you recognize it, you're like, wait a minute. That's because I was raised by like, it's the layers and it's undoing those. And so you get to now turn that around for your own kids, because that's another generation. That's right. That's right. I mean, at that, that big red book, it's sitting right here by my computer. I refer to it so much and it's adult children of alcoholics and it's the big red book and you can get it on Amazon or wherever. And I have literally just, I know I've read it from cover to cover several times. And it was my brother and I, after my father passed away, it was really a big part of the the reason or not the reason, but it was a big part of me forgiving my dad because it helped me understand that how hurt he was. And my counselors, all the ones that I, the different ones I had, I list in the book that they, they all said, that almost without any doubt at all, my dad had been abused. You know, one of them said 99.9% chance that he had been abused. And so by reading Adult Children of Alcoholics, you realize that that parent was really hurting and you see them as that hurt child instead of this monster, this terrible person. Our friend Nathan Spiteri says he always brings up hurt people, hurt people, but then healed people, heal people. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's like that element of hope. And I work with a lot of people in recovery. I teach people how to become recovery coaches. And what we realize is so many of the people have turned to drugs and alcohol because they were never dealt with, told their story. And so many of them, there has been a few in the hundreds of women I've coached that have said, I had a wonderful childhood and I I just, you know, got into drugs and alcohol, but most of them mm-hmm. have pain, pain, painful childhoods. And that's what they've been trying to avoid. And so we admire people like you that take those steps and recognize it's a process. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if you cried out to God and said, heal me. And then tomorrow you were just healed and you didn't have to do any of the work. (laughs) Oh gosh, it'd be glorious. Yes. It'd be wonderful. But I, I, like I said, I, I do think that my children have seen me go through quite a bit of that healing process. And now as adults themselves in their early thirties and mid thirties, they are now having the courage to deal with things that, that they may not have ever dealt with. And we can talk mm-hmm. openly about it and there's no judgment. And I, I feel like it's, it's just been kind of freeing for our whole family, honestly. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think 
as you go through the work, not only do the people, you know, in your family and friends see you doing the work, but you also learn a lot about yourself and you learn, you become more self-aware. Yes. And that self-awareness helps you in those times of crisis when things are happening or you're triggered or something's going on and that it's a constantly evolving process. But during that process, we're, we're showing others how to learn how to cope, so yeah. to speak. And and yes. that is helping to educate them. Like you said, you're, you know, your children and your family have been witnessing it and you you feel like your husband Mark has been going along this journey with you and, and learning with you how to go through it. So I think it is a gift to all of those in that we love and care about. Mm-hmm. It's also that journey from victim. To survivor. And I remember when Charnel has been my friend forever. And when she met Kevin and she said to me, well, he's like you, he's a survivor. And I remember that just stuck with me because I never looked at myself as a survivor, even though I had done the work. I, I mean, I didn't see myself as a victim either, but hearing it in those terms was, yeah, we're survivors and we're stronger for it. And we're not, we're not victims and we're not stuck there, but it is sad that so many people are stuck there. It is really sad. And we, I have people in my life that are stuck there and, and it's really painful to watch and to, to see. And sometimes I, I've even had to recently put some boundaries in place Mm -hmm. uh, because I think once you're stronger and you've started to heal from some of those things that you allowed in your life in the past, it, it doesn't sit well with them because, you know, they, they want to stay that victim and you see the choices that they continue making. And it's, it's hard to watch. It's really hard to watch. Yeah, and and we, again, it's the power of telling your story too, because once you tell your story, somebody else, you might just be the answer to somebody's prayer. Somebody who's been going, I do not know what's going on. They hear your story and they go, Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's it's true. I I was thinking uh, today how it was Kevin that I had asked him, you know, what he might be asking, and he had said he was he might ask me ways that help me now, you know, what helps me now. And I started thinking about that, and I I have something that I I guess I didn't even realize I was doing it because it's become just so part of me now. But when I was in the thick of things and consciously doing, you know, things to, to heal. Uh, One of the things that helped me so much was just putting scripture around things, short ones, even that, you know, I can do all things through Christ that give me strength or just little short verses. And so I put them in my car, I taped them over the washer, the dryer, and then I just put some, some things together, verses or, you know, biblical things in my mind together. And I started saying this, this one, and I'll, I'll just say it because I say it all the time and I'll say it throughout the day and it has given me so much strength and it's probably, you know, after therapy and all of that now in just my everyday life, it's probably one of the biggest tools that I have. And it, I just say, I'm a child of God. Mm-hmm. He loves me. I will not fear. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When I am weak, he encourages me to keep pressing on. I am bold, confident, and courageous in Christ. 
No weapon formed against me shall prosper because greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. And I'll just recite that different times during the day. And it, it helps me. And also in my bedroom, I wake up and I have a picture of Jesus holding a little girl who looks like she's really hurting and he's kind of cradling her in his arms. And it looks so much like me as a child. I, I saw it online somewhere and then I ordered it and had it framed. And then after I healed and those shattered pieces had been put back together and I started to feel that joy again and had hope and purpose, I got another picture and it was of Jesus and this little girl just laughing and looking like they're just having mm. the best time together. And I hung it next to that picture in my bedroom. And so every morning I wake up, those are the first things I see. And it's just a visual of the Lord taking, you know, just taking me and holding me and now giving me that joy back. I, I almost feel like that little girl inside of me that was so abused and tormented for so long now has a chance to live through me again. I Again, I say in the book, my, well, I didn't say this in the book, but for two, two years ago for Christmas, my kids gave me a tap dance floor that you put together. So we put it together in the living room. <laughs> it's this wooden tap dance floor and a pair of black patent leather uh, tap shoes that I had like when I was a little girl. And I have a silly wig collection and everybody that <laughs> knows I have silly wigs. I don't even know how many I have, 30, 40 of them. And so sometimes my husband might come in there and I'll have a silly wig dancing or you know, tap dancing to Frank Sinatra or something. So there was a point in my life 15 years ago where I, I never, ever thought that would happen ever. Never thought I would feel like doing any of that. And so I tell people all the time that God is in the miracle business. He is a God of miracles because I am one. And I spent years of my life in therapy, years of my life trying to fill that hole with love, with bad relationships, bad men, abusive men, you know, all these things, trying to fill that hole, looking for that love that my dad didn't give me when all along I had the best daddy of all, you know, really. And so it is a miracle how God can weave so much good and so much hope through a story that seems so hopeless. So I, I hope my story gives other people courage to, mm -hmm. to work and to take that journey. Well, and what I love too, is as a coach, we're always encouraged people to do the visual, but whether it's a collage or a picture mm -hmm. that you see, and then I'm such a big advocate of, of the spoken word, which is a, a mantra that you might say yourself or listening to somebody say it, but that how our mind can change our brain. But when our thoughts are ruminating in our head and they don't come out, then we can't change things. And so for you to have this beautiful mantra that you say, probably when you're feeling stressed or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just think that's such a great way for people to continue in their healing. And it sounds like it's something that you've kind of added on throughout the time. But even, even if you're like in sales or something like that, they have you do that to build yourself up. So <laughs> it's, it's so great to hear you say that, because I think that is a really great tool for healing. It's, you know, we're always saying, tell your story which is spoken, go to counseling. And then yeah. as you tell your story, it begins to evolve because you tell it different as you're um, walking into the healing process. Yeah. As you're growing. Exactly. I mean, I know one scripture, it's still in my car and I, I love it. It's, 
it's from Isaiah. I can't remember exactly where it's from, but it, it talks about, you know, um, I'm doing a new thing. Don't you perceive that, you know, making a way in the wilderness. And I love that. Just the, the expression, you know, I'm doing a new thing and just, you know, he can transform your mind. He can transform your life. And he, he did mine and it wasn't easy, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I, I, I can't say that I'm grateful for the things that happened to me, but I'm grateful for my healing journey. And I'm grateful that I didn't stop, that I didn't give up. That's so good. We're talking with Dana Morgan Murphy. Her book is Ballerina in the Box. Where can we get it? Amazon. (laughs) It's on Amazon now. And I also do have a website, ballerinainthebox.com. And you can follow me on Instagram, healthy, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y, mama, M-O-M-M-A, 777 on Instagram, healthy mama, 777. I, I put a lot of good stuff on that and hope, hope people will feel encouraged by the book and blessed and they can contact me through the website. I have a place there they can contact me or email me. And Dana, what is it that you really, really want people to know? I want people to know not just about the love of God and about God, but I want them to know how valuable they are, how they were created unique. They were created for a purpose and to have passion in that purpose, to to have abundant life and not to settle for anything less, that there's so many promises in the Bible And God will keep his promise if we are faithful, but we have to do the work. You know, we we can't expect to just sit back and be be blessed beyond measure. We, We have to do the work. And so I really want people to know that if they do their part, God will bless them tenfold. He's, he's blessing me beyond any of my wildest dreams right now. I mean, I I couldn't have dreamt that he would bless me this much. I'm just, very thankful for the work you're doing as far as with your book and trying to encourage other survivors and especially people that have come from broken homes and and how you can overcome that and like you said draw the line and stop that generational suffering that generational abuse and Mm -hmm. make a stand and then you get to see the the rewards for your family for your children and also, I think there was points in your book where your brother, before he died, got to a place of healing. And I think that was part of, you know, the remarkable work that you were doing. And I think I think it's just very encouraged by your story that it will encourage others and inspire others. That's my prayer, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. That's the only reason I wrote it was, was to, to help others heal. So that's awesome. Well, this is where we always wrap up in prayer and we would love it if you started us off. Okay. So that's it for today. We are going to have a prayer time if you want to stick with us. If not, we believe in you. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your stories. If you like this podcast, please rate and review because that's how other people can find us. And we really want to spread this message. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I am. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for all your provisions, Lord. I thank you for your protection. I thank you for Lori's story and Kevin's story and how they have inspired so many people with their podcasts, Lord. 
Father, I um, thank you for our, our meeting. And Lord, we just pray that good things will continue from this meeting. Lord, I pray that you will bless them as they go about their lives, Lord, and do more podcasts. Father, um, I just thank you for each of our families. And I ask that you would help them to do whatever it is that you have for them to do, Lord, to heal so that they can fulfill their purpose with passion. And we just ask this in your name, Jesus. Father, I thank you for all your blessings, especially the work that you are doing in our lives and the hope that you have given us. You are our hope, Lord, and I'm thankful that you persisted in Dana's life and now she is giving evidence of your hope in her life and encouraging others to find hope in you, Lord. And I just pray that her book would find those readers that would be encouraged and inspired and would find healing in their lives and turn to you and be inspired by you, Lord, and and just be comforted by you. Like she found the comfort in the picture of that little girl playing with Jesus and also being comforted by Jesus. Lord, I just pray that for those who are listening, they would feel your arms cradling them and also feeling that joy of your love of them. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to bless Dana and her family and that she would be an encouragement to those that she knows and meets. In your name I pray. Father, I'm so grateful for another story of someone who was brave enough Mm-hmm. to not only write the story, but do the work to yeah. to get help, to seek healing for herself and her family. And, and Father, just seeing the joy that, that has come her way in doing that hard work that sometimes I feel like we think it's too hard, it's too much, I don't want to go back there. But yet the freedom we can get on the other side is so worth it, Lord. And thank you that we can see this in in uh, Dana and in her story. And, and thank you that there's hope. Thank you that I like how she says miracles that, you know, we may feel like we'll never be healed or things will never be better, but that you are a miracle worker. And uh, I, I know there's that verse that says that you will do more than we ask or think and um, that you are a God who who wants healing and forgiveness and, and peace in this world. And so I thank you, Lord. Thank you for this beautiful story and for Dana and the hard work that she's done. And and I pray for the person who's hearing this that might say, okay, it's time. I'm ready and get the help they so deserve. Thank you for your love in your son's name. Amen. Amen.